Yorko welcome back to a uh, second season, I guess you could call this, of the Department of Conversation. Uh, with me, Pat Britton, and of course, Jace behind all the panels. He's the brains and the looks of the operation, obviously. Hey, um, thank you so much for joining us again. Yes, we've had a bit of a break for a month or so because, you know, it's Christmas and all that kind of stuff, and we need to take a break. We need to revitalise, we need to reinvigorate, we need to get ready for a new year. Um, a very uh, exciting start to the year. Got some interesting interviews booked in for the next... Uh, we while Jamie Dell, Greg Johnson, two musicians coming in, Katie Thomas as well, who's a blogger and a mum extraordinaire, and uh, David Clark, Minister of Health, uh, local Dunedin MP as well, but he's going to be coming in having a chat as well. Got a whole bunch of other feelers out there as well. I should always say, um, if you ever uh, think there are interesting people that need to come and join us in the Department of Conversation, you can always head to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash DEPT of conversation, and uh, yeah. Send us a message, tell us who you want to hear from, and we'll try and get them in. You know, we've got the Black Caps coming to Dunedin, we're trying to approach them. Uh, you know, we've got a few All Blacks hanging around, we've got some sports people coming through. We're trying to get people all the time, interesting people as well. Now, speaking of interesting, holy moly, uh, I saw these two people coming to Dunedin via the Otago University website. Uh, professor Nikki Clayton and Clive Wilkins. Professor Nikki Clayton is a professor of um, comparative cognition. Um, she has a speciality in the cognition of children and birds, uh, particularly around, uh, I think they're called corvids, crows. I'm sure she'll talk more about that though, so you'll hear about that. Um, and Clive Wilkins, who is an artist and a magician and all sorts of things as well, he's an arty kind of guy. They are working together on issues around memory and thought and um, I know myself and certainly Jace had a look at their write-up for them being at the university, and it just looked too interesting a conversation to miss out on. So hopefully you'll find it interesting as well. Um, they were great. It was great fun. Nikki Clayton and Clive Wilkins for you here in the Department of Conversation. Yep, and we're live. Good morning. Welcome back. 2019, our first uh, podcast of the day. Nikki Clayton and Clive Wilkins. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. It's great to be here. Thanks, Pat. I um, read up on the University of Otago that you guys were coming to share a lecture. Maybe Jake can just throw that um, throw that image straight up on the feed right now. You were coming. I, I keep an eye on interesting people coming to Dunedin because <laughs> I like to talk to interesting people. And you are coming to, in fact, it's tomorrow. We're recording this on a Thursday, I think it is, morning. Um, and tomorrow, Friday, at midday, you're delivering a lecture called The Seven myths of memory and I started reading through who you are what you do and what their lectures about and I went holy crap these might be the most interesting people I have ever read about in the history of the world okay we'll try to live up to that that's not going to be easy man well the thing is here's an example what we do here is we don't typically do like an interview. You know, I know you're going to do RNZ next week. It'll be question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. I like to come in here and go, tell me stuff. And just yeah. big, broad, open-ended questions. And um, so in that vein, not because I don't do the work, but I don't typically bring in a lot of notes because I like it to flow naturally. But today, I can show the camera actually. Um, today, I've got notes because... You guys seem to do so many things. I kind of wanted to at least be able to stay in the realm of what you do. So let me give you a really interesting one to start off with for people who don't know. Nikki, you are a scientist in residence at a ballet school. And Clive, you are an artist in residence at 
uh, a psychology department at the University of Cambridge. Yeah. Even that, even no more than that, I'm going like, I have to talk to these people. So why don't you guys tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, and why you're actually in New Zealand at all? Okay, well, I'm a scientist and a dancer, hence the reference to ballet and contemporary dance. And the common denominator for me is a passion for birds. I've always wanted to fly, and I don't mean in an aeroplane, even though <laughs> I'm grateful that aeroplanes exist, otherwise getting to New Zealand would have been a bit tricky. But I've got invisible wings, you know. Good. And I've always wanted to fly, so that's really the common denominator for me. And I spend much of my time as Professor of Comparative Cognition in the Psychology Department in Cambridge, studying how crows think about the world. So I study Corvid cognition and also parallels between how corvids or members of the crow family, including jays and ravens and magpies, how they problem solve and think about the world and comparisons with children. Mm. So that's my one job. My other life is that I'm passionate about science arts collaboration. So I work for a dance company called Romber. It's the UK's um, flagship touring dance company. They specialise in ballet and contemporary dance. And for the past eight years, Clive Wilkins and I have been working together, exploring our art-science collaboration. Clive is the artist, me as the scientist. But really, I think these days, Clive's not just an artist, and hopefully I'm not just a scientist. We've really integrated everything together. And what we're particularly interested in is... Combining evidence from art, science and the performing arts to study the subjective experience of thinking, memory, perception, metacognition, which is reflecting on what it's like to think. Mm. Um, and Clive would add consciousness to that mix. Yeah, you bet. Um, you art, bet uh, your baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think artists traditionally, you know, if you look at all the arts that are produced around the world, what is it that artists are interested in? Well, ultimately, it's this conscious state that we all find ourselves in. How do you explain this world that's unfolding all around us right now? It's a, fan a fascinating thing, and it's a conundrum. It's a kind of illusion. Um, reality is something that none of us can quantify so precisely. And that's why I, as an artist, am so, so honoured and so delighted to be able to work with somebody like Nikki, who's a world-class scientist in her own right, who looked at bird cognition. And together we're, we're trying to explore ways in which consciousness, perception and memory works. We're looking to see how we do it. Uh, we're looking to see how it can change and how it can vary. We want to be able to unfold reality so that we know more about what's happening around us. That's probably our big remit, I think. And, and your, your, your artist um, status or, or title, you do um, find, you do painting. Yeah, and I, I, and I read in one of your um, bios that you've been involved in a, a fairly famous um, painting with one of our own, the Sir Peter Blake. Oh yeah, yeah, and and you do magic, and yeah. you write books. Yeah, and I guess that means you illustrate those books as well. Yeah, it's all it's all there. It's you're you just talking about um, birds just a few minutes ago. It's just another layer of this is so interesting. Um, <laughs> what you guys do together and you bring it together on, on one thing you started up an organisation called The Captured Thought Yeah, can you explain what that is? Well it's our science arts collaboration which is aimed at trying to integrate evidence from disparate disciplines to gain a better understanding of the subjective experience of thinking so it's really about 
using transferable skills. So if a psychologist worked with a biologist, mm -hmm. the distance between those disciplines is relatively small. Okay. Whereas if you take two very different kinds of disciplines, such as fine art painting and psychology, then there's a much broader gap. Can you go, I mean, can you go even bigger than that? Could you go psychology in a welder? Yeah, 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 definitely. You yeah. could, but what's interesting, I think, about our particular take on it is that because of my interest in birds, yeah. I'm interested in thinking without words because obviously birds don't read and write. We can debate what we okay. mean by language, but if I just want to be categorical about it, I think we could all agree that as far as we know, we are the only animals on this planet that can read and write, full stop. So birds don't use words to think. But many forms of art don't rely exclusively on words to think either. Meaning what, they, they evoke an emotion or response or some kind of yeah. non-verbal response. Yeah, exactly. They, they have an icon, uh, you know, paintings and art have a kind of iconography. You can read what's being said in yeah. front of you without you having to use words at all because they use symbols. Uh, they, the, the picture plane is laid out in such a way that you, you know what the most important part of the painting is just by looking at it because your eye is immediately drawn there. This is a kind of communication. The artist has done that deliberately. Mm. Yeah. But this is, again, not using language. And the same is true of dance. And, of course, there another commonality yeah, yeah. is not just without words but with movement. And birds' behaviours and manners and movements just in the same way as so human forms of dance. So we're trying to integrate all that information together and ask what it's like to think without words. And I suppose the really ambitious problem is not just without words, but beyond words. Yeah. Are there instances in which words somehow constrain us, perhaps because some of the emotional responses that are evoked by some of the thoughts, language is only the vehicle by which we express those thoughts, not necessarily the medium with which we think those thoughts. And so that's kind of why doing it really big picture, looking at lots of disparate evidences and how we can fit them together might move us further into, I suppose the ambitious claim would be, could we therefore develop new ways of thinking or new ways of exploring ideas? Mm. So, so thinking without words, i.e. the birds, like you're talking about, implies that as humans, as a species that we are, we think with words? And is that because we use words? Because I think when I think, I don't see a sentence going through my head. So does that mean, but because we have words innately, that's a part of our thinking process? And, and if that is the case, my question is, aren't words just a tool of communication, much like a click from, for example, a dolphin? So when they think, they might not think with words, but if they're thinking because they click to communicate, is that not similar? Well, the, the words that we use rash, uh, rationalise our thoughts. Our thoughts come first, probably before language. Right. Um, you know, uh, in writing a book, for example, I, I, this is an activity, activity I'm doing right now. I'm writing my next book, and I have an idea of where I want to take that book. I've got a notion of the kind of emotional uh, uh, state of mind that I want to evoke. In but that you don't book. have the words for that yet. Well, I've got to find the words. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I know what I want to achieve, uh, and I know that... The direction I want to go into. But if I'm not careful, since I actually apply words to those ideas, yep. I have found in the past, for example, that the words can take on a life of their own. 
and I write something, I read it and go, oh my God, that's very clever. But when I think about it, when I analyse it, it's not actually quite what I meant to say. Mm. And I'm prepared to put up with it because it looks clever, but it hasn't really described what I actually meant. So it's almost like there's two things going on here. There is the mind, the way in which we think about the world around us. Yep. It gives us a, a kind of truth that uh, you know, uh, makes the world um, seem, the, seem real to us in some way or other. But quite often when we start to use words, we, we, we explain something different. And the words start to have a life of their own where the whole of society could be built on words and not thoughts. Mm. Perhaps we're not exactly going where we really want to go because we rationalise things in such a way that it runs away with us, like the internet, for example. Well, could that also be a problem that once we use words, i.e. we write things down, for you talking about society, how it runs, then the society is run based on those words, but if we've evolved beyond those words, that then becomes a problem. I'm thinking about things like, you know, when a constitution is written or when a, yeah. a treaty is written, yeah. then there are words that are down that we adhere to, but maybe society has moved beyond that. Yeah. And what, we need to find new words or we need to move away from those words and move towards thought well, to run society? An interesting thing here is we have a lecture that we do, which is, uh, we call it the beauty lecture, don't we, Nikki? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, and the idea is that we all have an idea of what we consider to be beautiful. Beauty is something that we hold to, close to our hearts. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is, and, and it's been great, because beauty has actually made the world that we live in right now, because we, we make choices about what we want, what we like, what we think are good. But eventually those choices become uh, simply our own prejudice. And actually, if we're going to think further in the 21st century, if we're going to think beyond ourselves, if we're going to find new questions to ask, we have to learn how to think beyond beauty. We have to see what's really in the universe and not just the way in which we paint it. Because the world around us is, exists in a human form. Mm -hmm. It's our choices. Mm. But, but going back to words, I think another important point is that we know from a number of anthropological and psychological studies that words do shape the way we think. So, for example, there are people um, in the Amazon, in mm. the Mundaruku tribe, that don't have words for all the numbers that we use in the Western world. So they have one and two. And then, and then they, they have, have few and many. Yeah. And that changes the way they think not just about number, but also about time. So if you gave them five marbles and said how many, they would say few. And if you then gave them four of something else and six of something else, they wouldn't differentiate between four, five and six because that's in their category for few. Right. And that's all it is. Now, it's not that they don't see the difference because if you ask them to look at People spontaneously, and animals, and young children, spontaneously look at things that are surprising. So if four go behind a screen and all of a sudden six appear, that's surprising and people look longer at that mm -hmm. than if just four appear. And the people in that tribe look just as surprised as people that have numbers for four, five and six. So it's not that they don't notice the difference, but because their words categorise in a different way, mm -hmm. four, five and six are few, they're not differentiated, they don't do that. And that raises interesting questions about how the use of words shapes the way we think. And you see similar examples with space. There are cultures where they only have terms for absolute space, north and south, um, not relative, up and down, left and right, so on and so forth. And that also changes the way 
they think about space. So even the simplest of words that that seem to be just labels Mm -hmm. as opposed to more complex linguistic descriptions which may ambiguously evoke an emotional response can fundamentally change the way we think. So do you think that would be an advantageous... um thing for society that it, like like a change based on what you're talking about with the, the way we use words would be a good thing for society would it be a neutral thing would it be a bad thing I guess I was also wondering why you guys are doing this I mean you travel the world doing this you know like what's the end is it just because you love it and you love to talk about it or is there an education part of this that you want to say guys look what we've found and look what we, we can do I think we're all inquisitive about the world that we live in. We want to have more answers to the questions that our minds pose. And so it's a kind of compulsion. Right. We're driven to do it. We're all driven to do the thing that we have to do. Um, and as an artist, I, this, this, these are the conundrums that I want to unfold. I want to know more about this world that I live in be, before my own demise. Uh, I'm driven to do it in the same way that you're driven to do all the things that you do and mm. the audience is driven to do the things that are most important to them. Mm. We're kind of like biologically driven by something, probably. But that doesn't change the fact that it's, it's still important what we do. Uh, and we have to do it. What, you know, what else is there to do? Mm. I think one of the things is appreciating that we have cognitive milestones. We mm-hmm. have roadblocks in our thinking. And, you know, you can have the very ambitious claim of saying, I want to be able to see further. I want to discover something new. But perhaps the first step in going on that path is understanding some of the fundamental mistakes or or fundamental things that we don't seem to be able to see. And I think memory is a particularly good example of that. And I suppose the big claim that we would make is that many of the myths about memory or the things that we assume about memory that turn out to not be correct arise because we tend to think that memory is all about the past but in fact memory evolved for the future if you think about it what's the point in remembering something if it's only ever about the past if you're never going to use it again memory is a bit pointless so remembering something, experience something that you remember to help you in the future. Yeah. Be it yeah. something very minor like my PIN number. But yeah. if I forget that, what's the point of remembering? Or, you know, more important things to do with danger, to do with, you know, keeping yourself safe. Anything you remember to then use again in the future. Yeah, and there's a good way of actually seeing this yeah. uh, or quantifying it. If we all think about what happened yesterday, we can recall the things that happened. But do we remember everything? No, we don't. Our minds are selective. The stuff that we found uh, exceptional or interesting in some way is remembered. Mm -hmm. The stuff that just seems to be more of the same is kind of forgotten because it's not so relevant. We've been there before. We've done it. We don't need to remember that so much. So the the things that we choose to remember and recall and the things that we choose to build on are the things which we believe will probably make us more successful in the future. What? So it's a question of survival, in a sense. You could look at it that way. Yeah, and you often hear people say, oh, I don't even know what I had for lunch yesterday. And that's probably true, because that's a mundane, everyday, you know, not nothing that needs to be stored. I also wonder about um, the things to help you survive in the future. What about trauma? I mean, people who have had a traumatic memory 
you know, a, a, an attack, a rape, a, a, a near-death experience, or whatever. Rem, how, remembering that keeps them safe. Can, can memory, those kinds of memory, be harmful to our future? Like if someone has PTSD or can't get over something from their memory, how, how does that relate to what you guys are working through? Well, I think there are some, I mean, it's not our area because, you know, it, this is the realm of psychiatry, really, but there are practitioners of psychiatry who can um, help some of their patients with traumatic memories by helping them to re-remember them. Because the interesting thing about our experiential memories, our emotional memories, are that they're subjective, but they're also subject to change. And each time you revisit a memory, an mm -hmm. experiential memory, as opposed to a fact about the world, you can actually change it, and sometimes without realizing it. And there's a wonderful expression that we often use um, in our lectures, which really captures this sort of quintessential feature of memory. And it goes something like this. You don't remember what happened. What you remember becomes what happened. Let's say that again slowly, because it's, it's a really good little phrase that really encapsulates how we think about so many things. You don't ever remember what happened. What you remember becomes what happened. So is that a little bit like um, my parents often tell uh, a story about me when I was four traveling in the South Island getting a prickle in my foot and the story has got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger so it's not the actual memory now but the story has become the memory yep. like it is gospel but it's not that's right and that's also how we can get have false memories mm. of things that didn't actually happen to us but because we remember them as if they happened yeah we then own them they become our memory and sometimes that can be done deliberately to embellish a story but sometimes it's just you're not even aware of doing it and I suppose it really started in 1931 by a man called Sir Frederick Bartlett and he was the man that founded the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University of Cambridge it's now right. the Department of Psychology but until about three years ago it was experimental psychology mm. And he ran an experiment in which he told the participants a story, um, a folk Indian folklore story, War of the Ghosts. And then he asked his participants to give a precy, perhaps a paragraph, say, synopsis of what happened. And each participant told a slightly different story. So everybody omitted the bits that they didn't find interesting. Right. And contextualised it to make it fit in with their current schema of the world. So they embellished the bits that they did find interesting, omitted the bits they didn't like or found boring, but everybody told a different story. And that was really the beginnings for something fundamental about why our emotional experiential memories are so subjective. We make them our own, we write them. We're the author and the owner of the memory. And we change them to fit our current needs and, and you see that i mean as i understand a lot of the times for example when witnesses are needing to report something back like a, like they've witnessed a crime or they've witnessed something even though they've all seen the same event yeah. normally what happens is they all have different stories yeah 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 and on top of that even though they have their own different stories they will relate that story to another person depending on who they're thinking they're talking to right 
So they change. So even their, their stories may even change to different people. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because depending on how you view the person that you're talking to, right. that, what you think their social background is, what so you all think subco- they're... So all subconsciously, though, how is this person going to receive this story? I better tell it this way? No, no, I don't think it's done consciously. I think it's no, done... subconsciously. Subconsciously, yeah. 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 There's something else interesting that goes on as well. It's called boundary extension. And essentially what happens, and, and this happens to all healthy human beings i was going to say normal but i'm not sure we'd be categorized as normal let's say healthy human beings and be safe with it is that we fill in the gaps so it's called boundary extension because if we were to show you a photograph Mm -hmm. and in the image there were things that were out of sight so let's say it's a rubbish bin Mm -hmm. but from the image you can only see part of the lid of the rubbish bin your brain would naturally fill in the complete lid of the rubbish bin because you know that with these kinds of bins say the lid of the rubbish bin is circular right but you only see part of the image of it it doesn't make sense you see this in painting as well anybody looks at a a painting a figurative painting something that looks real like a photograph or or even looking at a photograph um, you look at the image and you immediately try to make sense of the image by not just seeing what's there, but mm. by imagining what else is there. Uh, for example, you do ima- try to imagine the rest of the room or the rest of the scene or what might be behind the picture. Mm. You do actually sort of start wondering what happened a moment before yeah, the, the yeah, picture. Yeah. And you're already anticipating what might happen after the picture. Uh, you can see it on this screen here. If you look at the blue bit yep. with the writing, yep. you can see that the top of the blue bit is cut off. Yeah. But your brain would naturally fill in that bit. It wouldn't assume that it really looks like that on the page. Yeah, yeah. You would naturally extend the edges to it. I've, I've also seen uh, quite a lot of memes go around and often people will, I've, I've probably seen it half a dozen times, and it will be sentences written out with all the vowels taken out. Yeah. And it's surprisingly easy to read. Precisely. Because your yeah. brain just fills in those, yeah. those vowels and you're like, I, I can read this weird alien language very easily yeah. yeah and we do it with our memories i'm just going to say about the art as well it's like when you get to the end of a movie i, I do this constantly i go so after the superhero has finished that thing and they've saved everyone and the building's just fallen down what happens when the police turn up you know as he you know what i mean it's you, yeah. you, you fill in the story and you keep it going in your head mm. yeah i watch superhero movies don't know if that's good or bad <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. so once you start to become aware of these ways in which we think and the ways in which we process information, the question is to try and catch ourselves out. If we want to think better, if we want to think more, if we want to be creative, we have, it's a very difficult thing to do to think creatively. How do, you, how do you make a new idea that nobody's ever thought of before? Or even just an idea that you have never thought of before? Mm. Well, we've come to the conclusion that one of the things you have to do is be aware of the roadblocks in our mm. thinking the thing that stop us from seeing further. And for that reason, we've started using uh, magical illusions right. in, in our lectures. Um, we, we, we do our lectures and we make the lecture theatre into a kind of laboratory because we show people things where they go, hey, that's not possible, you can't do that. And really it indicates some of the roadblocks in our thinking, how our, how our logic doesn't extend far enough to explain some often relatively thing, simple things that are happening right in front of our noses. Is that right, Nikki? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So you fool people and they go, hang on, you're not supposed to be able to do that. Yeah. This is not real. Yeah. We could, yeah. We could show you right now. You, you've got a camera on here, haven't yeah. you? Yeah. 
Okay, uh, can I stand up away from the microphone? You can do bit? that. Do you need okay. to speak into it? You can actually move this if you need to. You yeah. can yeah. do what you need to do. Okay, that's good. So we've got some magic going on. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Uh, so if we've got people listening on the audio, this is probably a good time to um, check out the video feed for this. Okay, so here I've got uh, four four coins, four large American coins. Okay, uh, you, you've seen this before, I think, Nikki. Yeah. Uh, check out those coins for a start. They are coins, large American coins. Yep. And 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 I think you can sort of see that they're American American dollars. Yeah. Oh, I should look at them more closely. Uh, yep, they've got some kind of bald eagle on them. They look like. Yep. Yeah. Okay. They're good for this because they're they're quite big and they're heavy. And I've and as I think you can see here, I've got four coins. Yeah. Yep. In the palm of your hand. Four four coins. Okay. Yep. Nothing in the other well, nothing in the other hand. I say apart from the fact that there are four coins. Yeah? Yep. Four coins there, right? You can see them. Yeah. I can see the four coins. Because if I just come along and do this. Yeah. Something interesting happens. There's now a coin over there. Yeah. But if I show you what's actually in this hand here, I think you can see there are three that there coins. are actually only three coins. There are actually only three coins in that other hand. So in some way or other, one of those coins has moved from one hand into another, right? So yeah. one coin here, two coins here, yeah. one coin here, three yeah. coins there. One in one hand, three in the one. other. As soon as I do this, there are now two coins in each hand. <laughs> That's crazy. Is that crazy or what? That's crazy. Because okay. I have to say, I told you this before we started, I watched that program, Pen and Teller Fool Us, and I'm, I'm watching it really closely. <laughs> Two coins in each hand. Yep. You can see that, yeah? Two yep. coins? Yep. Watch. There's now three coins over here, only one coin over here. That's crazy. Because it's even, it's, it's, I, I was watching that hand that had the two in. Right, it gets harder because I've only got one coin left. Okay, I'm going to watch the one right. coin. I'm watching that hand. Okay, have I done it yet? I don't think so. You're, you're right. I've not done it yet. Okay. So look. Okay. Let's try it one more time. So you got three, three, there. three, one coin here. Yeah. Fold us. Fooler. Bring down the fooler sign. <laughs> <laughs> but so now, so so, how does that? Re I mean, you've just messed with my head. Yeah. How does that now relate to my cognition, memory, and my perception? I guess it is because I've just seen something I, that I know is a trick. Um, but I can't figure it out. So no. what, what's happening? Well, boundary extension. Boundary extension. You're you but no. I'm not filling in the gap. You said boundary extension was when we fill in the gaps. Yeah, I'm not filling it in. Because your yeah. boundary extension doesn't, it doesn't extend far enough. Because, you know, my boundary extension does kind of go to know how that trick works, and I won't say a thing. But, but no, actually, you know what the truth is? I know how half of that trick works. I don't know how you lose, I don't know how it disappears from one hand, but I sort of know how it appears in the other hand. And that's why I was watching the disappearing one so close. I'm like, okay. I, I saw the one disappear. Well, I didn't see it, but I, quite, I very vaguely know how so it So So there's a part of me, so it's like, I feel like my boundary has partly extended, but I'm still completely fooled into part of that as well. Like, like have no idea, was watching so closely yeah. for that one to disappear. Well, the thing is, we have to train our, if we're going to see further, if we're going to have better problem solving um, uh, devices at our disposal to go into the future, we have to be able to develop how we think further. Otherwise, the world is just going to continue in the same kind of way, because we'll use the same kinds of thinking patterns endlessly and forever. And we are so if we do the same thing and expect a different result, that's the definition of madness sort of thing. 
Well, we, we need to think differently in order to invent a, a new kind of future because it, well, commentators at the moment are saying that if we carry on, on on our planet right now the way that we're going, we're going to come to the edge of our own planet, aren't we? And we're going to destroy ourselves. Right. Now, if we're going to develop civilizations across the planet, do we do more of the same or do we have to do something different? Mm. And if we're going to do something different, we have to trick ourselves into thinking differently or else it will just be the same forevermore. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And we have to be aware of what the biases are. So the way in which the brain naturally works is it makes associations or connections between two events. So if you see something go from this hand into this hand a number of times, mm -hmm. then because the brain is always trying to anticipate, because memories evolve for the future, it's trying to stay ahead, it's going to just assume that every time something from here goes to here, even if it doesn't actually fully happen, the brain being ahead thinks that's what's going to happen. Mm. And essentially what we know from what's called associative learning theory is that the, the brain makes associations and it anticipates, but it's looking to learn about things that are surprising. So if something unexpected happens, it learns from it. Or if it doesn't learn from it, it wants to learn from it. Like, so I want to know how that trick's done. That's right. Yeah. But if everything that you're expecting in that moment, mm. not at the end outcome, but in that mo individual moment, happens as you expect it, then you don't notice the inconsistencies. Right. So there are lots of things that may be inconsistent that we don't even notice. And there's a classic one called change blindness. And this is sometimes called the gorilla in the room effect. You may know it. You're, you're asked to watch a video and there are two people, say, throwing a ball at one another and you're asked and to count. And the gorilla walks past. And the gorilla walks yeah, past. Yeah. And the first time you watch it, you don't notice it. It's really obvious. Yeah. And the moment it's been pointed out to you, you'll never not notice it again. But nonetheless, it doesn't affect the fact the first time you're shown those things, you don't notice it. I think the only time I've seen that particular experiment was maybe on a Darren Brown or something like that. And I, they didn't just do the experiment, they explained it. And I went, how could you not see the gorilla? But they'd already explained it. So, you know, I didn't I didn't know what was going on. That's right. There's a number of them. Doesn't David, isn't there a famous David Copperfield one where he's doing effects like the backdrop changes yeah. and the cloth and... There's lo loads of examples. And obviously, once you've been told about it, <laughs> it ridiculous. seems so It does obvious. seem ridiculous. And you're like, how could people not notice that? Yeah, yeah. But when it's done <laughs> to you the first time, you really don't really? notice it. What we need to do is prime ourselves to see these things before they happen, you Right. See. And, and our brains are so conditioned to thinking in a particular kind of way that we forget that there are other ways of doing things. For example, in some of our lectures, we, we, we point out to the audience that we're going to re recite the alphabet, A, B, C, through to X, Y, Z. Mm. Then we say, let's do it backwards. And that takes a long, lot yeah. longer, right? Yeah. Now, actually, magicians are particularly good at reciting the alphabet backwards. Right. And also, magicians are very good at actually seeing magic effects that they've never seen before and knowing how they're done. All right. Because they just understand the principles uh, and, the the, and, and the techniques yeah. and the ways of seeing required to pick up what's going on in that moment. Yeah. And all of us need to be better at that in order to create the transferable skills that allow us to see more than we can at the moment. We need to educate ourselves and elevate our game in a new kind of way for the 21st century. Yeah. yeah. And it's worth bearing in mind that we find it very difficult to reverse engineer sequences. Yes. And, you know, people think that there's the lovely expression in Alice 
in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. He's got many wonderful expressions in there. But one of them is it's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. And we've already said, well, memories for the future. Mm -hmm. But it's also true that it doesn't really work backwards very well. If you think about it, we don't reverse time in the mind's eye. We jump back to a memory, but then we play it forwards, not backwards. And if you don't know what the particular sequences in an event are, it's actually very difficult to completely reverse engineer a sequence. Yeah, we don't think back incrementally, mm -hmm. one stage at a time. Yeah. Which is why if you want to see a magic trick and work out how it's done, so many people record it on video and then just play the video back very, very, very slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's probably the way to do it. Because if you could think back incrementally, one step at a time, no magician would ever be able to get away with half the stuff that they do. So I'm very much an examples person. That's how my brain works. Right. So if we're talking about jumping back to a memory, and then moving forward. Give me an example of that so I can grasp okay, it. Okay, let's do today. Yep. We came in the door this morning, as arranged, at 10 o'clock. Mm -hmm. I reckon it would be quite hard for any of us in this room to actually reverse engineer the entire sequence. Where we sat, where we started talking, what we first started talking about, what we talked about next. So reverse engineer meaning literally go backwards? or Yeah, so now we're sitting in these chairs. Yep. What happened before then? Who stood up first? How yeah, many yeah, times did Clive yeah, go up and down? In yeah, I guess, I guess I think about that and I kind of think it's easy to think of the bigger issues because we came, we were here first and then we were over there but there was seven steps between those two so the more finer details are more difficult because Clive, yeah. you did stand up four or five times to check we were getting your best side in the camera. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, we and he did, did go for a wee first. And, and we you know. <laughs> <laughs> always got to mention that on the podcast. Um, and we did find this blank and we found another blanket but I know that we looked at two blankets, but yeah, you're right. Actually, to, to go step by step, every single thing is difficult. To do bigger, broader chunks feels more difficult. It's easy for us to do it now because it's the recent past. Right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if we tried to do this tomorrow, it would be harder. Right. However, interestingly, there are a few people on the planet who can remember everything and they can reverse engineer things one step at a time. Yeah, have you heard of this syndrome? It's called... Highly superior autobiographical memory. Me and Jace were talking a bit about this this morning, and we were also talking about um, people with didactic memory and that kind of thing. Um, so, it's, so, so, tell me about the highly superior. This is on your um, your seminar for tomorrow. You're talking a bit about this, aren't you? Yes, we will. So, um, there aren't there aren't many um, case studies known. Mm -hmm. But one of the women that has been studied in some detail by Jim McGaw in the States is a lady called Jill Price. But there's about four of these people that are known. And they're perfectly normal people in most regards, yeah. but they have extremely detailed memories. Now, these are not... Pic these are not detailed pictorial memories. You can train your memory with a memory palace to, yeah. you know, remember lots of facts. Yeah. This is just the natural encoding of information which is in general more detailed than ours but probably the biggest difference is that they don't forget so we might have a detailed memory of what we're talking about now mm. but you know in a few days time many of those details will have faded certainly the relatively seemingly unim unimportant 
details will will have faded from our past. Whereas people like Jill Price, these people with highly superior autobiographical memory or mm-hmm. HSAM, don't forget anything. So, so, they, so ten years, fifteen years, twenty years. Yeah, and we'll remember this conversation in ten years from now. That's right. Word um, for word. Well, pretty much. Wow. And not only that, they're obsessive about rehearsing their memories. So if you were to ask Jill Price, you pick a date at random, 17th of October, 2018, she would remember it in great detail. She'd then be able to tell you what she did on the 17th of October in any other year of her lifetime. Wow. In great detail, what she wore, what she ate, who she saw, what she was thinking about, what she read, what was on the news, you name it, great details. And, you know, in some ways, wow, that's incredible to have those details. But I'm not convinced from the descriptions that we've read that it's a blessing. Imagine you have a row with your loved ones, a few words because you're a bit stressed about something. Yeah. And then it's never forgotten. Yeah. Even though you apologise. Yeah. But, it, but then it, it's still ruminating in your head. All those regrets, you know, forgetting some things is actually a blessing so jill price for example and and, and people who are uh, who have this condition do they you, you kind of see they function as a normal person day to day do they does she got a job no not really i said no. kind of what i meant okay. is there's you know there's nothing wrong with her ability to read or write or, or her linguistic skills because i would think this would be horrific but it's horrific yeah yeah, I mean, it seems to be the kind of person that when they were at school would do amazingly because they can remember everything from every textbook, but that in the real world would seem to be, uh, I mean, it feels like your brain would always, I sometimes have trouble going to sleep at night because I am thinking of this amazing people in for this podcast tomorrow and I listen to music to make my brain stop, but it just seems that person would never, ever, 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 ever be able to stop. That yeah. must be exhausting. Yeah. yeah, it probably is, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And also, um, uh, quite, quite often, they, they don't cope with the, the world around them in the way that we do yeah. successfully uh, because they're constantly dwelling on things that have happened to them in the past. And it can become so compulsive, the thoughts that they have, that they have to create strategies for themselves in, or, in order to cope with their particular reality. Um, some, of the, some of these people with uh, this condition uh, are trained to only think of the good things that have ever happened to them so that they don't dwell on the bad things. Right. So they might do something like think of, well, what day is it today? Is it Thursday today? Yes, Thursday. yes, it is. They might choose to think of all the good Thursdays they've had right, and go back in time incrementally. But then they'd remember all of them. But the good times, yeah. It's all 52 right. of those a year times 40. <laughs> yeah. Crumbs. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it seems, yeah, it, it does seem exhausting. But this becomes a coping strategy yeah. f- which um, allies itself very well to a different kind of thinking. Mm. And indeed, if we develop our own ability to think differently about the world around us, we will also develop new coping strategies, as we do with the advent of the internet and the smartphones and the ways in which our lives are changing. Yeah. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, neuroscientists are saying that people these days are thinking differently to how they did 50 years ago. So. Mm. Yeah, I saw, I saw something recently about that, saying that we, as a human race, we're actually very quickly, our brains are sort of getting to the point where we no longer... Not, not, not. I think medium-term memory because we don't. Long, we no longer have to remember phone numbers. We no longer have to remember dates. We don't really have to yeah, remember true. meetings because yeah, our yeah. phones are doing all yeah. this for us. Yeah. We're thinking yeah. differently, and, and then we just 
you know, I don't know my wife's cell phone number. I don't know um, my kid's cell phone number. That sort of thing, you know, it's just, yeah. ju- it's just, it's, te- it's terrible almost. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, I can't yeah. remember my name today. <laughs> <laughs> Clive. There was, a, there was actually a really interesting um, on the Joe Rogan podcast, um, who we're, we're personally fans of. Um, <laughs> he had uh, Elon Musk come. He was on, and he actually talked about how we're technically um, almost becoming cyborgs because part of our brain and our memory has been devoted and done by a computer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we're certainly thinking Use it or lose it, you know? Yeah. Well, it's that thing. You're sitting around the table and you want to know something now and you don't know and someone just pulls out their phone and asks Dr. Google. I mean, yeah. We all do. I mean, we've done it today, you know? Yeah. We we pull it up and we don't, we don't have to have the same kind of cognition of memory that we once did because I was just talking about it the other day. I was talking about, you know... Uh, my kids asked me about, I can juggle, and my kids said to me, oh, Dad, how did you learn to juggle? And I kind of said, oh, I sort of taught myself. And they went, oh, did you use a YouTube video to do it? And I'm like, eh, no, YouTube was around about 30 or 35 years after I learned to juggle. <laughs> and they, so they're, they're going to have even less need for memory than us because a lot of stuff you can just look up. Yeah, yeah but the thing to do here is, re- is record and take note of how things are changing mm. because yeah. with the, the historical archive we have, we can actually travel back in time we can remember or discover how things have been in the past and the way people have lived in lots of different times past Mm -hmm. and having an understanding of that and a recognition of how we're changing is really fascinating because it tells us how our brains think we can analyze the thinking process Mm -hmm. by seeing how different people in different even around the world right now how different people different peoples in different cultures think about their worlds Um, looking to see how the brain operates is one of the most fascinating things for us. Mm-hmm. In a sense, you know, we've just talked about smartphones and all that kind of stuff. It, for the normal functioning human brain, our brain is like a smartphone that we've just bought from mm. the store, right? Mm. It works in a particular kind of way. It has patterns for use. It has a, a circuitry, etc. just like our brains have circuitry. And our brains, um, we, you know, we develop over a long period of time as a species and we fill our brains with different things Mm. and different people's brains in different times uh, have different connections but looking at the overall structure the things that are the same and the things that are different between different cultures and with brains of different times reveals to us how that brain is operating you know some of the best research into uh, the operation of the brain uh, and how neuroscience works comes from looking at people like Jill Price who, who do something different, remarkable things like mm. that. Mm. Um, and the other remarkable thing that we find very interesting, for example, is the person who can't remember. Mm. Right. There are, there are, for example, people whose memory uh, capacity is virtually nil. There's a mm. man called... Uh, Clive Waring. The man with the 30-second memory whose hippocampus has been destroyed. Mm, it, it's an interesting case. Um, normally, if you were to look in a psychology textbook mm-hmm. about memory, the most common person that's described is Henry Meliason, or HM, as he was known until his death, because he was considered sort of the textbook study of a man with no declarative memory. And By that we mean no memory that he's consciously aware of. He had body memory, so for example he could learn how to mirror write, but he didn't know that he knew how to mirror write. So his body, his muscle memory, his body memory had learned it and remembered it, Mm -hmm. but his mind had no conscious access to those memories. So he could do something that his mind wasn't aware he had the ability to do? Yeah. Wow. And with Clive Waring, it's very interesting. He doesn't tend to be in as many psychology textbooks because 
we don't know the extent of the damage to the brain. It was a viral infection. It's the herpes simplex. So trauma has caused this? It's not a trauma. It's a virus. So in a lot of examples, it is a trauma. So motorbike accident, for example. But in this case, it's a virus. It's the herpes simplex. Now, normally that causes an ugly-looking, embarrassing cold sore near the lips and which is gone in a few days and that's the end of it but if that crosses i I put makeup on for that (laughs) (laughs) but if it crosses the blood brain barrier it's bad news and in very few cases of which clive waring is the most famous this happens and he was very ill terrible fever for a few days and when he came through it all essentially his conscious memory had been wiped and there have been a number of programs made about him um, including a horizon program called the man with the um, seven second memory or something in truth he probably can remember for about 30 seconds and watching you can find clips of this on youtube and his wife deborah waring wrote a wonderful book um, about their plight um, called forever today um, and in one of the um, episodes she describes, he was a very well-known British BBC Radio 3 music broadcaster, wonderful musician, um, conductor. Um, and so he was very famous in London. He would go around the streets and people would come up to him and go, hello, Clive, how are you today? And she said, there's only one word in that sentence which doesn't freak him out. Can you guess what that word was? Are you today? Today. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Clive freaked him out because how did these people that he had no memory of ever seeing before right. know his name? And how are you today? Well, how do you know how you feel today if you've got no memory of yesterday and last week and last year? You've nothing to compare yeah. the present with. The present has to be contextualised if it's to be believed. And without any memories of what it was like, before you don't know how you are today he was very fortunately caught on film one day saying something which uh, is it's a very very clever thing to have said and if he hadn't been filmed nobody would ever know this he famously said consciousness has to include me it's a lovely little phrase Mm. which explains you know so much of our own experiences of living we are here we're aware of what's happening around us and this consciousness has to include us. If it didn't, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. Everyone. It has to include everyone. Him yeah. as well as everyone else as well as everyone yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there were all kinds of anomalies. So, for example, because probably because his amygdala has been spared, we mm-hmm. think, he knows that he's married and he knows that he loves his wife. Mm. Oh. And yet he says, I've never seen you before. Well, but he but he knows, can't remember his wedding, can't remember yesterday, can't remember... Ever having seen her before, right. and yet he knows he loves her. Now and she's this, highly intelligent, so... I, I'm looking at our one. lifetime, we're just crossing across 11 o'clock. What do you guys like for time? Is it time for you to make tracks, or...? Five or ten? I was just going to say, I mean, we, we, we can wrap up. It'd be, it'd be good to let people know, I mean, we are live streaming now. It's Thursday um, late morning. Um, what you are doing tomorrow and tell people about the university. We can have a look at it, bring it up on the screen. You're doing the seven myths of memory. So that particular lecture, what are you going to be talking to people about? We're going to be talking about some of the issues we've discussed right now, in fact, about 
the importance of memory. Mm -hmm. But we're also going to be talking about seven roadblocks or seven myths about memory. Mm -hmm. For example, that memory is all about the past. For example, that memory is an accurate, objective record of what happened. So what we've just talked about is that we... So seven myths. Um, We've got a paper that we've published on this as well, um, which appears on our blog site, Mm -hmm. The Captured Thought, um, and it's in a journal called Behavioural Processes. But it's really all about how these myths arose, essentially because our experiential, our emotional memory evolved for the future. So it's great at scenario building and mm-hmm. thinking about lots of potential alternatives that allow us to imagine the future and importantly plan for it. Why that's so important for storytelling, but why actually it's not very good if you want an accurate, objective record of precisely what happened. Interesting. I was also thinking for you, uh, Nikki, um, I often get, I, I, you know, you play that game sometimes. If you had a time machine, I mean, it's interesting because you talk about, you know, the ability to travel backwards and forwards in the mind's eye, but if you had a real time machine, where would you go to? One of the things I often say, because I have a bit of a thing about birds as well, is I'd like to come back here to this very spot about 200 years ago, because I'm sure you're aware New Zealand didn't have any mammals other than a couple, the, uh, the rat, uh, not a rat, sorry, a, a, a bat and a seal and some other bits, but otherwise we were a nation of birds. Yeah. So um, there is an island which it, it does, unf- uh, it begins with him, in the Hodaka Gulf in Auckland that they've basically made rodent-free and it's probably the closest thing you'll get to what New Zealand was 200 years ago. Wow. And you should certainly, I was going to say it's not Maraitai, maybe Jace can Google it, island of the Hodaki Gulf that's got pest free and it's got birds and it's a half day trip you go across on the ferry and you get to experience New Zealand full of birds oh, like wow. it used to be that sounds great so, sounds wonderful yeah but if, if birds are your thing this is the country of birds at one stage you've got some great sanctuaries here as well. oh, it's, we it's, saw the albatross yesterday oh, oh. well here in Dunedin as well Orokanui yeah. yeah, I've been up there yet yes. on the other side. Yeah, that's great. That isn't was it? brilliant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we're not going to probably find it. Someone will. Someone will tweet it through or put it through or. Um, no, it's not that one. It doesn't matter. I, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember what I did. I used to follow them on Instagram, but yeah. Check. I mean, I'll, I'll find it and I'll, I'll send you guys an email Perfect. and let you know Thank what it is. You. And if you've got a half day, how are you? How long? Much longer in New Zealand for? Till next Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And you're leaving Dunedin shortly-ish back up north? or We're going down south, I believe. Oh, nice. Us. Such a great place. We have to see some of it before we oh, go absolutely. back. Yeah, absolutely. The scenery. Oh. People come to New Zealand and they go, oh, it's such a small place. Three or four days will do it. And you're like, nah. nah. <laughs> yeah. We want that. to go down to the, the bottom end of the South Island yep. and look out into infinity. Nice. Right? So it's two kinds of infinity there. One's, one's the ocean that stretches out. Yep. But we want to see it at night so we can see your... Your great constellations, because yep. New Zealand's so fortunate. You're looking out of the universe. Yeah. In the northern hemisphere, you're looking into the universe, into right. the Milky Way itself. But this way, you're looking into infinity. Excellent. Uh-huh. Um, the captured two, two and a half hour drive. Just head down to Castle Point. And you're going to go to the lighthouse there. Right. If you come in the winter, you can sometimes see the Aurora Australis as well, or our southern our oh. southern lights. Wow. That, that would be a thing, wouldn't it? Oh my <laughs> yeah. god. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, the I think cap- we need, we're going to need to come back. I think you will. Uh, the Captured Thought website is, what's the URL for that? 
thecapturedthought.com. Easy. Oh, there it is, right there up on the thing, thecapturedthought.com, if people want to know more about you. Tomorrow's lecture <laughs> is at midday, I think, so around lunchtime, so if there is anyone in Dunedin, um, they can just look up the seven myths of memory, and I'm sure they'll find you at the Otago University. Hey, uh, Nikki Clayton and Clive Wilkins, thank you so much for coming in. It's amazing. It's, you, know, you come from the UK to New Zealand, and you're giving us a, an hour or so of your time in our little... Uh, weird podcasty thing that we do. It's our privilege. Thanks, Pat. It's our privilege. It's been amazing. Delighted. Thank you. Thanks, guys, so much. Yep. Bye. Bye. Well, that's us, number one uh, for the year under the belt. Thank you for being with us. Now, look, we uh, we need to get the word out there about you know this amazing podcast that we're doing here, the Department of Conversation. So uh, we want you to subscribe to this feed wherever you have heard it. Uh, iTunes is probably the easiest place to get it, but we are also on Spotify and Stitcher as well. So subscribe to it. And if you hear something that you enjoy, spread the word as well. Let other people know about the guests that we've got coming up, the guests that we've had coming on. It's always going to be about the guests. What we try and do is have conversations conversations not necessarily do kind of your normal interview so it's a bit different what we do here so uh, we're also on YouTube and Facebook as well facebook.com forward slash DEPT department DEPT of conversation and on that Facebook page are all the links to all the other places you can find us as well so please come along and subscribe and if you hear something you like share it and if you hear something you hate keep your mouth shut we don't want to let anyone else know about that and <laughs> that'd be good as well and uh, yeah as a reminder uh, Jamie Dow Greg Johnson uh David Clark, Katie Thomas and others on the way in the next few weeks. Um, thank you for joining us again. It's good to be back and we look forward to spending the year with you getting some more of this content out there. It's a whole bunch of fun. We're hoping you're enjoying it as well. All right, have a good one. Hooroo. Hooroo.